Uh, so I was out of town this last week, I was on vacation. We went up to visit my family up in Cincinnati, Ohio. And then I came back on Tuesday, I came back on the 4th, and Becky and the kids stayed up in the Indiana area to visit with her family. So uh, I have been without a wife and kids this week, and they're actually coming back as we speak, uh, which gives me between the end of church day and about five o'clock to get all of my honey to-do list stuff done uh, before she gets home. She gave me a long list. And I, you know, I put it off just like everybody. I was like, oh, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. And then today I'm like, I have to get to it. So uh, if you see me rushing out of here, I'm rushing out of here for good reason so I can get everything done. And she's not going to hear this because she's driving. She's not going to be able to be on her phone. So I'm in the clear, at least for a little bit. Uh, but with that, it's at least for me, like the first part of them being gone is almost like, oh, I got a little bit of a break for the, from the kids. Like it almost has this sense of being nice for like 10 minutes. And then as soon as that has passed, it's like, no, I really do miss them. And so this whole week has been me missing the kids and missing Becky. And I'm so thankful for FaceTime, right? FaceTime, they FaceTime me during the day. We FaceTime before we go to bed. We FaceTime randomly throughout the day. And at first this kind of bothered me because they would FaceTime me and I'd want to talk about their day. I'd want to catch up. I have a lot of FOMO with them having all this fun stuff and me here working. So I was like, well, they tell me about your day and what'd you do and what was that like? And and they never really answered the question ever. It was always just like, hey, dad, watch this. And then they're like making me dizzy as they're walking the phone around and doing goofy things. And I'm like, hey, hey, sit still, stop moving. Tell me what's going on. Tell me what you're up to next. And they would never get that conversation out. I finally came to just embrace it. And now I'm actually loving it. Where they'll FaceTime me. This happened yesterday. They'll FaceTime me, have nothing to say. And they just make faces in FaceTime. Like this was us yesterday. That was it. If you were to ask me, Brian, what did you talk about? Nothing. We just made goofy faces on FaceTime together and then they would go off and show me other things and they'd want me to walk around and show them Cooper and like, I was like, you've seen the house before, like it's not, nothing's changed. So they really just wanted to be around me and I just wanted to be around them. And that got me thinking, man, what a beautiful picture. It's not about the conversation all the time. It's not even about the information that is exchanged all the time. Like when Becky and I FaceTime, like there's an adult conversation that goes back and forth. When the kids get on, it's just chaos and they're just there and doing weird, funny things, but we're together. And I think sometimes we approach our relationship with God very transactional. God, here's what's going on in my life. Tell me what you want me to do. God, here's what I need. Here's what I need you to give me. God, here's what I'm going to say. Now I'm waiting for you to say, like it, if we're not careful, our relationship with God can feel very transactional. And as we go through our study of Psalms, we're about halfway through with the summer in our study of Psalms. One of my hopes for all of us is as we sit in Psalms, we get used, we get used to just being with God. Where it's not all, it doesn't always have to be I need this and I want to hear this and God, what about this? And like, that's important. I'm not saying we, we forget all of that, but I don't want us to miss the crucial aspect of just sitting with God. The other day when we were FaceTiming, I was at work and they FaceTimed. I'm like, hey guys, I'm at work. They're like, that's okay. <laughs> I'm like, well, I can't really talk to you. They're like, that's okay. We just want to sit here. I'm like, okay. So they sat there while I did sermon prep, <laughs> just sitting on FaceTime. How beautiful is it, though, to have a picture of that as our relationship with God at times? Where it's, God, I don't always just need something. I just want to be with you. 
That's what Psalm 63 is going to show us. There's not an ask. It's not a God, give me this. God, tell me this. It's just being with God. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 63 today. If you know, Psalms is a compilation from a lot of different authors, even different generations and times. We see a lot of different seasons that these people, these authors are going through. Sometimes we have context for those. Sometimes we know who the author is and what's going on in their life. Sometimes we don't. Uh, regardless, in Psalm 63, we actually do get not just the author here, the psalmist, we also get the context. So if you've got a Bible, Psalm 63, even before you get to verse 1, there's a little heading that gives us some information and context about what is going on with the author of this time. Here's what we're told. Psalm 63, a psalm of David, that's King David, David and Goliath David, regarding a time when David was in the wilderness of Judah. We don't know exactly all the context. In fact, David was in the wilderness two times in his life that we know of, one before he was king, one after, king, after he was king. Both were very difficult seasons for David. The one before he was running for his life because King Saul was trying to kill him before he became king. Then once he became king, one of his sons, Absalom, actually rose up, tried to overthrow David, started a revolt and a coup. And so David ran away into the wilderness to escape, to hide away. But it's not just in David's life that wilderness pops up. We see the word wilderness and the environment of the wilderness show up quite a bit throughout scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. All the way back with Moses. Moses fled Egypt and went and hid out in the wilderness tried to restart his life, started a family out in the wilderness. That's where God spoke to him, actually, in the wilderness. Elijah, not to be confused with Elisha, Elijah ran for his life. He was running away from Jezebel, an evil queen, and he ran into the wilderness and about had, it, had the end of it. He was like, I'm at the end of my rope. He was very honest with God in the wilderness. Israel, the entire nation of Israel, after they were delivered out of Egypt, they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. In the New Testament, Jesus, we're told, Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted. And here we see David, once again, in the wilderness pops up. Now, we might not be able to relate with all of those examples of the wilderness. Right? I personally cannot relate to David running for his life and hiding out in the wilderness. I can't relate to that. But here's what I can relate to is how David describes the wilderness. As we're going to see in verse 1, David describes the wilderness as parched and weary. He said this is a parched and weary land. In other words, it's dry. It's desolate. It's lonely. It's difficult. It's scary. It's lacking. There's nothing out here. It's weary, it's tiresome, it's exhausting. Now that I can relate to. Seasons of life, environments within our life, where we would say, I'm just in a parched and weary place. I'm in a scary and uncertain place. I'm in an exhausting, lonely place. That I think we can relate to. And what I want us to see is what David does in the wilderness. We've said it time and time again throughout every psalm that, we, the, that we'll read, Psalm 1 all the way to 150. The response is always the same, worship. And I want us to see how David worships God in the midst 
of the wilderness, because it'll be the same for you and for me. Here it is, Psalm 63, now in verse 1. So we know the context written by David while he's in the wilderness, running and hiding for his life. Verse 1, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you. And here's his description of the wilderness. In this parched and weary land where there is no water. It's interesting that that we see David describe the wilderness, parched and weary, but he also describes his desires, right? And it's almost like they don't match up. If you are in a dry and exhausting and weary place, your desires are probably food, water, comfort, shelter, security. Like we would usually think of those things. If this is the environment I'm in, And it's lacking all these things. Like he's got nothing. He's lost his home. He's alone. He's got no food. He's got no water. Like it is a place of lacking, a place that's missing, a place where all of his things have been taken away. And instead of trying to regain those things, regain those possessions, his desires are very different. He says, I long for you. Not just I, but my whole body aches for you. My soul thirsts for you, and I search for you. See, his desires are not based on his environment. They're based on his relationship with God. He's not desiring all the things that he's lost. He's leaning in to his personal relationship with God. As we go through Psalms, we always want to look at what truth is being taught. We're going to see several of those. Here's the one we see out of verse 1. Here's the truth. When all you have is God, you realize all you need is God. That's what David is realizing here. He's like, I've got nothing. I am in a parched and weary land. I've got nothing. It's desolate. It's wilderness. It's desert. And I've got nothing, but my whole body longs for God. When we realize that that's all we have, we recognize that's, that's all we need. He is all we need. And David doesn't just talk about God as as God, as creator, as almighty, as deity. He says, oh God, you are my God. Oh, he's talking about the personal relationship with God. It's not just this God that I've heard about. It's not that this, this God of my ancestors. It's not even the God that is all powerful and can rescue me and can give me what I need. No, this is my God, my personal God. Like, we have a relationship. That relationship is going to be what sustains David throughout his time in the wilderness. Nothing else. We're going to see that later on. But it all points back to his personal relationship with God. Verse 2 takes that idea of a personal relationship with God and leans in just a little bit more. David says in verse 2, I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. This is speaking to to when David has spent time with God prior to the wilderness. In the wilderness, there's not a temple, there's not a sanctuary. Now, David is not limiting God to those places, of course, but it's the idea of before I was in the wilderness, I spent time with you in the sanctuary. Before I was out in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere with nothing, I saw your power and I saw your glory. I've seen it before and I wanna see it again. Here's why this is so important. David is giving context to his relationship with God prior to the wilderness, meaning now that he's in the wilderness, he's not just now running to God. 
He's not finding himself in a place of lacking and saying, oh God, now I need you. He's saying, no, I I have been spending time with you, God. I have seen you in your sanctuary. I've seen your power. I've seen your glory. And now I want to see it again. Is it wrong to run to God when you're in need? Of course not. Is it wrong to run to God when you're in trouble? No. But is that only the time you run to God? See, David is showing he has been spending time with God consistently before he was ever in the wilderness. That's important. Again, we run to God when we are in need. We run to God when we need rescue. We run to God when, fill in the blank, situational. But we don't just run to God when we need something. We run to him, period. And that develops a personal relationship, but that takes time. And if you've ever trained for like a marathon or a half marathon, maybe a 5K or just going out to your mailbox, if you've ever trained for a race like that, you know that you don't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to go run. No, you, you have to train for those things, right? You wake up and you run a little bit. Then you wake up the next day and you run a little bit more. Then you wake up and you run again and you keep building up till you're ready to run that race. In some ways, faith develops in that way. So for David to be in the wilderness, he's seeking God because that's what he's done before the wilderness. He's relying on God now because that's what he's done before. He continues to search for God because that's what he spent his time doing. That's why when we talk about even here, every day taking next steps in your faith, every day looking for ways to be with God, oh, those are the parts that grow our faith over time and develop that personal relationship with him. Instead of just waiting for, oh, well, I need him today. I'll go ahead and ask. We knock on the door. God, I need this again. Oh, I forgot to ask for this. No, when that becomes just what you do, you're constantly with him. That's where that personal relationship is truly grown and developed over time and consistently. Then verse three, he begins to reflect on how great God truly is. This is where his worship comes in. Verse three, your unfailing love is better than life itself. And let that statement sink in. Your unfailing love is not just good. It's not helpful. It's not amazing. It is better than life itself. Oh, how I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. What a beautiful statement. And again, remember the context. David is, is writing this. He's worshiping this when he's in the middle of the desert without anything. Almost feels like a contradiction. Well, man, God, if your unfailing love is so great and better than life, like why is David in such a predicament? Again, oftentimes we come to God in a, with different expectations. Oftentimes we come to God expecting, well, God, if I follow you, God, if I give you my life, if I love you, then what do I get in return? And David doesn't even look at that. He just says, no, I, I want to be with you because you and your unfailing love is better than life itself. Here's the truth that David is getting across in this part, that we don't love God to get a better life. We love God because he is better than life. We don't follow God just so that things improve for us based on our terms. We follow him because he is better than anything or anyone else. And David begins this part here in verse three with those words. He says it with his words. But as we know, it's so much more than just words. And that's where some of the actions come into play. 
Oh, how I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live. It's not just I'm going to say that you are better than life. I'm going to start to show it with my praise and with my worship. And notice he's praising and he's worshiping the giver, not the gift. We've talked about this idea before. If we're not careful, we will begin to desire the gift more than the giver. Instead of the giver more than the gift. And our worship makes that obvious, right? For example, if we worship the gifts of God more than God himself, you can tell in our worship, you can tell in your own personal worship because when you're not getting the gift that you want, you don't really feel like worshiping. Well, I didn't get what I wanted. Or if that gift isn't the gift that you were praying for, you're a little bitter. Maybe that gift is taking too long to get here and you're getting impatient. You can tell when your worship is aimed more at the gifts of God versus God. And we see here that David is solely focused on the giver, not just the gift. If you've got like the scriptures, if you've got Psalm 63 where you can see like all of it, I'm just putting like verse by verse up on the screen, whether that's on your phone or or in your Bible, I want you to see something. This is where like having it in front of you is going to be very helpful. I want you to just look holistically at Psalm 63. And I want you, if you've got like Bible like me, then you can like circle and write in your Bible. I've gone through and I've circled every time David writes the word you, Y-O-U. It's everywhere in this Psalm. Look, You are my God. I search for you, thirst for you. My body longs for you. I have seen you in your sanctuary. It's your power and glory, your unfailing love. I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live. I lift my hands to you. You satisfy me. I will praise you with songs. I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you because you are my helper and I cling to you. Like it's over and over and over, this, uh, this word you is everywhere in David's psalm. And that shows us David is focused on God, not what God gives. I praise you, not what you give me. I search for you, not your gifts. I long for you because of who you are. It's the giver more than the gifts. And like I said, it's not just words. David shows that in his praise, in his worship, with his life. That's what verse four shows. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. Let's talk about lifting up hands for a second. Some of you, you get excited about that. Some of you are like, oh, it's not that kind of church. One or the other. Yeah, there's some hands, right? Let's talk about the hand raising for a second because it's it's an interesting thing when you walk into church, right? Some people are like, let's go, it's worship time. And you walk in here with your hands up. Some of you walk in and you're like, I don't know what to do with my hands. Some of you are like one hand, then that one gets tired, then I go to this hand, right? Some of you are just like, I am not raising my hands. I'm just going to do just like this. And you're perfectly fine with that, right? Let's talk about it for a second, right? Why is, why is David making a point of hands raising, right? Here's the best way I can describe it. So the Braves are doing pretty well right now. Would you, would you agree with that? Yep, yep, yep. I saw a couple hands go up already. You're getting the idea, yep. So the Braves are doing pretty good. I'm from Cincinnati. The Reds are doing really good too, by the way. Um, we won't talk about that. I'm in Georgia. Uh, so this Friday, my family and I, were actually going to go to the Braves game. So uh, before we even get there, I'm going to tell you how the night's going to go. Uh, me and my family, we're going to sit in seats similar to this. We're going to be sitting with a bunch of strangers. We are not going to know anybody else around us. In fact, most likely, my family and the people around us, we're only going to have one thing in common. The fact that we are in the same place at the same time and cheering for the same team. That's really the only thing that we're going to have in common. But we're going to be around all these other strangers in this massive stadium, sitting in these seats, and most of the game is going to be like this. 
Right? We're going to be sitting and watching. But if anything about past, th- this past season so far is an indicator of what's going to happen on Friday, something awesome is going to happen. Right? There's going to be a great play. There's going to be a home run. And we are going to go from this position to this position. Almost immediately, we go from, oh, that was, he's up to bat. It's taking forever, like swing already. And then, oh, it went out of the park. And all of a sudden, we're hands raised. We're screaming. We are high-fiving all of these strangers around us. We're doing two times. We're doing fist bumps. We're screaming. And we're so thrilled at what just happened. All the, all the lessons I've given my kids on stranger danger, out the window. Hug everybody in our section. Everybody's so thrilled and so excited because of what just happened. My, my words are not enough, right? If, if you were to sit in your seat and when that happens, you just feel it, right? You, you can't just say, woo. It's underwhelming. So when something like that happens, you can't help but give more than your words. You give with your hands, you give with your legs, you do whatever you can to show your excitement because words are not enough. Now, if you were to see me on that Friday game, Braves hit a home run and you see me do this, what does that tell you? Tells you I'm checking the red score. That's exactly right. Cincinnati plays Milwaukee today. That's a big deal. It shows, I mean, I'm there, so I care. I showed up. But something else is more important in that moment. Right? So when we come together on a Sunday, be careful. Like, don't totally take, some of you are like, and be like, man, I have to do this now every time we sing. Or Pastor Brian's going to like call me out. It's not what I'm saying. Right? Church and baseball, very different. But I do think it's worth an internal reflection for each of every one of us. When you show up to praise God because he is better than life, I don't know how to do that with just my words. I don't know how to tell God, you are so amazing, you are so incredible, I'm in awe of you, and your love is better than life. I don't know how to say that like this. That's just me. So here's what I would challenge you and encourage you to do. Give God more than your words. Does that mean you have to always do this? We're gonna sing a fourth song like we normally do. And seriously, I'm not gonna be sitting over here judging y'all if you don't have your hands up. But what does it look like to give God more than words, more than the lyrics of a song? Because when we raise hands, it's a full body. You can't just raise your hands and be still. Like when those hands are outstretched, it's your arms, it's your chest, it's your legs, it's your toes, it's everything. You're saying, God, I'm giving you everything. And our hands are outstretched with hands open saying, God, I'm giving you my all, not just my words and not just in this moment, but I'm giving you everything I am and everything that I have. And God, my hands are open because I have no idea what you want to give me in return. I believe with all my heart that you're not done with me yet. So God, whatever you want to do with me, whatever you want to do in me, whatever you want to do through me, God, I'm ready for it. That's what this looks like. And I don't know how to do that with just words. So when we sing, would you give him more than words? 
That's what David does here. He says, you, your unfailing love is better than life. And so I praise you and I raise my hands to you because words are not enough. And this all stems from a personal relationship with God. Verse five, look at how he describes this relationship again. Verse five, he says, you satisfy me. Ooh, remember that word. We're gonna talk about the idea of satisfaction in a second. You satisfy me more than the richest feasts. I will praise you with songs of joy. I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. What was the word you're supposed to remember? Satisfy. Isn't that interesting that again, we're talking about David and the wilderness in an environment where he has no satisfaction, where nothing is satisfying because he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's afraid, he's lonely. But then he makes the statement, but God, you satisfy me more than anything else. We need to talk about satisfaction and distractions, those two words. And oftentimes it's in the wilderness, it's when we're, we're struggling, it's when we are lacking that we start to just pull for anything that promises satisfaction. I'm lonely, so I'm just trying to pull at every relationship. I'm thirsty, so just anything that just quenches my thirst. I'm scared, so just anything that provides comfort. We try to just grab onto anything that promises satisfaction. The problem is nothing truly satisfies except God. If something is promising satisfaction, even water, for example, Right? It would make sense if David said, I, I just need some water because I'm thirsty. I'm in this parched and weary land. Water would satisfy my thirst. That would make sense on some level. Makes me think of John chapter four. Jesus is meeting with this woman at a well. She's drawing up water. Jesus basically says, why do you keep drawing water from this well? She's like, well, I'm thirsty. Duh, I'm getting water. And then Jesus makes a profound statement. He says, anyone who drinks from this well will be thirsty again. But anyone who drinks from the water I give them will never be thirsty again. The idea, even water, even food might satisfy you for a time, but then you will end up thirsty again and hungry again. Ultimately, it's a distraction. David recognizes that. David says, I will not be distracted. I will only go to the one that truly satisfies do you know what we call those distractions? Do you know what like the Bible word is for those? Idols. An idol is anything that distracts you from God. An idol is anything that pulls your attention and your worship away from God. We usually don't use the word idols, but we use the word distractions quite a bit. So let me say this, just like I feel like David would say, don't settle for distractions. Don't settle for what promises satisfaction, but leaves you wanting and still empty. Only one truly satisfies. No matter the environment you're in, no matter the situation you find yourself in, only God truly satisfies. And again, it's more than just words. Notice, I lie awake thinking about you. I meditate on you. This is from a man who is, I would use the word, obsessed with God not just knowing of God, not just believing in God, has so much love and devotion and affection that it is an obsession where he longs for him. Only God will satisfy him. Even in a parched and weary land, all David wants is God. 
the last section, I want you to look for past, present, and future. Notice how David kind of wraps this psalm up. Verse 7, David writes, Because you are my helper, I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. But those plotting to destroy me will come to ruin. They will go down into the depths of the earth. They will die by the sword and become the food of jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear to tell the truth will praise him while liars will be silenced. Did you catch past, present, future? The past, look at what God has done. He's been my helper. Original language there in Hebrew, it's not like you are my current help. It's like, no, you are my helper because you've helped me. And then David even uses that beautiful imagery. We see it throughout the Psalms of in the shadow of his wings. Under the shadow of God's wings points to two things, protection and presence. Protection and presence. How God has come through for David in the past, even when he goes through difficulties. Being under the shadow of God's wing doesn't prevent the bad things from happening. doesn't prevent the wilderness seasons. But he's with you, presence, and there's protection. He gets you through it. That's the past. Because of the past, notice what David says. I cling to you. Because of what you've done and what I've seen, I hold on to you. I'm glued to you. I couldn't imagine letting go of you. And I love his language here of your strong right hand holds me securely. This is nothing against lefties. My oldest son is a lefty, so it's not saying God's right-handed. It's a symbol that God is skilled and he's strong. Your right hand is your strong, your dominant hand is your strong hand. It is also your most skilled hand. If you saw me throw a baseball with my left hand, man, you'd all laugh. You'd probably still laugh with my right throw, but it at least look a little bit better. The idea is your dominant hand is strong and skilled. So for David to cling on to God and God holds on to him back with skill and with strength. In other words, God knows what he's doing and he's capable of taking care of all things. So that's what we do in the present. We cling to him. And then the future, we trust God. David begins to like play out this scenario. I know how this is going to end. I know God's going to take care of me because he's done it before. So this is how this is going to end. Notice his response in all of this is not to take care of himself, not to do the work himself, not to play the role of God. David's role, verse 11, but the king will rejoice in God. What's David going to do? He's going to watch God take care of him. He's just going to keep praising God because of what he's done. I'm going to cling to him and I'm going to continue to trust him and praise him no matter what. This is a psalm of being with God. Because nowhere in this psalm does David ask for anything. Did you catch that? If I'm in the wilderness, the seasons of my life that I would describe as a wilderness environment, God, I need this, and God, help me with this, and God, I need you too. Nowhere in here is David asking. He's just being with God. Here's the question I'd want us to wrestle with. Do we want God more than we want anyone or anything else in this world? There's the question. It's not about the gift, it's about the giver. Do we want God more than anything or anyone else in this world? That question was actually given by David Platt. I'm going to read uh, the quote by David where you'll see that question in there. Here's what David wrote regarding this psalm. Sure, we'd say we believe in God or we'd even say that we worship God. But the question is, do we want God more than we want anything or anyone else in this world? Do we want God more than we want our spouse or our kids? 
Do we want time with God more than we want an extra hour of sleep or exercise or so many other things we spend our days doing? Do we want God's glory in the world more than we want more comforts in the world? Do we want God's glory more than we want our money? When we want these things more than God, that may be a sign that we don't realize the greatness of his love for us. We are, after all, talking about the God of the universe who is infinitely more beautiful and satisfying than anyone or anything else in this world. So the question, do we love God more than anything or anyone else in this world? Do we follow God because of what we get? Or do we love and follow God because he's better than life? This is not a psalm of asking. It's a psalm of being and sitting with God. So I wanna give you an opportunity to do that. The three questions that we've been asking throughout our study of Psalm, let me put them up on the screen for you, is what do we praise God for? Out of Psalm 63, what can you praise God for? What truth is being taught? We looked at several of those from David's perspective. What truth is being taught through Psalm 63? And what do you need to ask God? Maybe not ask of him, but what kind of dialogue do you need to begin with God? In other words, what do you need to pray about with God? For some of you, it's recognizing the season in your end and trusting in God. For some of you, it's the truth that only God can satisfy. Maybe you've been pulling at all kinds of other distractions, and it's time to stop settling for distractions, but go to the one that only can give you true satisfaction. Maybe your relationship with God is less personal and more transactional, and you need to lean into the being with God. Focus on the giver, not the gift. Whatever it is for you, I want to give you just a moment. So before we sing this last song, would you be willing to just sit and be, to be with the God who is better than life itself?